we've, uh, since then, we've gone through Jude, and we've gone through um, almost all of Romans. Now, I think that a, a preacher with more exegetical tools could do much more with this book, and we could have gone a lot more slowly, but um, being that this is our first time through, it's been good to keep going at a pace where we can absorb big chunks of it and get the whole overview of what it, uh, what it says. Um, I've found it a tremendous blessing just to uh, listen to the whole book of Romans at once. Um, there are so many ways to do that now with MP3s. You can put it on your phone or your iPod. Um, you can, I think, Bible Gateway, you can actually listen to, uh, you can specify what you want to listen to and you can pick whatever translation you want. Uh, but, you know, Romans, it can seem a little difficult and a little convoluted when you first read through it and there's so many logical steps and it's like a, a complex legal argument and you wonder whether you're ever going to understand it. But the more that you listen, and especially when the word is exposited and broken down through preaching, the more that you listen, the more that it begins to make sense and you begin to think the way that the Apostle Paul thinks because the Lord is renewing your mind by the reading of his word. So if you can do that, I managed to do that twice this week while walking. Just listening to the whole book takes just over an hour. Um, having gone through the, the book together, I think it'll be a great blessing if you can find time to do that. Maybe on your commute or some other time. Alright, so Romans chapter 15. Our message today, um, for lack of a better title, is simply called Paul's Final Encouragement to the Roman Church. And this will be part one because this last section, chapters 15 and 16, consists mainly of personal words and sort of an epilogue to everything that we have studied thus far. Um, there's, we, we've kind of covered the main doctrinal section, which is chapters 1 through 5, 1 through 12, pardon me. And then we've also looked at, um, in chapters 12 through 15, uh, a very intensely practical section about how we are to live. Um, knowing that we have the mercies of God laid out for us so clearly in the gospel. Well, this is, uh, we're, we're winding down here, but there's still plenty that God's word has to say to us in, this, in Paul's letter to the Romans. So we're going to read chapter 15, verses 14 through 33. Um, in fact, just to give it a little bit of context, let's start at verse 8, and let's read through together. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may, be, may abound in hope. So that little benediction at the end kind of signals that this section is over. Now we start into this uh, um, section of final encouragements. I myself 
am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders and by the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I made it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought, to, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of, peace, God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now I call this Paul's final encouragement. Um, it is his final encouragement in this letter because Paul did get to Rome and um, under circumstances of imprisonment and being brought before the guard, and I think he even managed to get there more than once, and he did get there to encourage these people in person. Uh, but... This letter of encouragement to the Roman church, it is equally encouraging to any church. Um, we are a long way from Jerusalem, and a lot of us are a long way from Jewish. We're not, we're not the chosen people of God according to the flesh, as Israel was. And in this letter, Paul has addressed some of the fundamentals, some of the basics of uh, what the Jews believe in order to educate his largely Roman audience about the law and why it's so important and how it shows us our sin and how it presents to us Jesus Christ as the end of the law for righteousness' sake to everyone who believes. Um, but predominantly it is uh, a Gentile congregation. There are some Jews there, as you see in the last uh, chapter 16, there are all kinds of names, and some of them are Jewish names, like uh, like Mary. Some of them are Roman names, like Tertius and Quartus, which means third and fourth. 
really good names for our children, that really creative parents there. But anyways, um, this mix of Jew and Gentile is something that the Apostle Paul addresses in almost all of his letters. Because the beauty of the gospel is it has brought together in one man those who were far off, being the Gentiles, and those who were near and chosen by God, the Jews, and he has brought them together to be one man in Christ and has destroyed the dividing wall, figurative a picture of the wall in the temple where the Gentiles could come so far and no further. He has made them one in Christ. Um, so we can very much compare ourselves to the Roman church. Having come to Christ, not so much out of adhering to the law, but out of paganism, out of Romans chapter 1, where we, um, where we identify with people who have gradually put the knowledge of God out of their thinking and have begun to worship other things. Um, idolatry is always a relevant topic. We worship things other than God. We construct even mental images of God that are con contrary to Scripture and contrary to who He is and worship those things. But this, uh, this section is prefaced by what I would call a summary of Christ as the hope for the Gentiles. Romans chapter 1 shows that not only do people do things that dishonor God and do things that are strictly forbidden, but they take pleasure in others do, that do them, even though they know that there is wrath coming. Everyone has a sense of what is right and what is wrong, and that there is judgment for that. Even from creation we have that. What we don't have from creation is God's specific way that he will draw people and save people who are under his wrath and bring them under his mercy. In chapter 2 of Romans, it shows also that the Jews, those who are standing in judgment over the Gentiles, are equally condemned. They are also unable to keep the law. And in chapter 3, it says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, and on and on and on. Last sentence, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is a universal condemnation of mankind. That is not the good news. That is the bad news. That even, um, that, that even the people who have had access to God's laws have not been able to keep them. And they are lumped together with people who have had no external knowledge of God's laws, only the witness of their own conscience. And they are all declared guilty. That's the bad news. That is not the hope that Paul has been talking about for the Gentiles. But here's the hope. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, a righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the hope of the Gentiles. That is the greatest encouragement that Paul has brought in this letter, just assuring them of their hope in the gospel. And now he is going to um, just kind of, just to encourage them in their day-to-day lives as they live in that gospel. All right, encouragement number one. Encouragement number one might sound a little strange, but is that there are a multitude of counselors in the church. There are a multitude of counselors in the church. In Proverbs 11, chapter 24, it says that there's safety in a multitude of counselors, but when there's no guidance, the people essentially go astray and get lost. But Romans chapter 15, verse 14 and 15, they tell us that the church is equipped with many counselors. And I'll read the verses here. It says, I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now that word instruct, eutheteo, literally means to, um, to come alongside, to guide, to direct, to admonish. All of those things, that is like a summary of what it means to counsel one another. Now, in the church today, there seems to be a separate priesthood that has been set up, where there are people who are uh, specifically skilled and specifically trained as counselors. And that's where, if you've got a really bad problem, you go to the counselor. Now, there is a place for this. There's a place when there's medical knowledge necessary and so on. Um, However, God's plan for the church is that we can encourage and counsel one another. And this letter to the church, this statement that says that the Romans are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another or competent to counsel one another, it's basically saying God wasn't kidding when he said that he gave the church all of the gifts and all of the abilities that it needs to function as a body. We can all listen to one another if we know the Word of God, if we understand the Gospel, and if we're living in compliance with the Gospel because of the Spirit of God in us. We can say that we are full of goodness, that is moral goodness, and with all knowledge. It doesn't mean that we've got all of the book learning and all of the theories all worked out in our heads. But God's word is sufficient. God's word exposes more clearly than any other book that's ever been written or will be written, will ever be written. The depths of the, um, the wickedness of the human heart, all of the things that affect the human heart, and by that I mean the human psyche, the soul, the mind, and the remedy for twisted thinking. And a, and a 
and a stony heart. God takes out the stony heart and gives, gives us a heart of flesh. So that is a great encouragement, and it should be the, a great encouragement to every church. You don't have to have any kind of letters behind your name. If you know Christ, if you understand and have received the gospel, and if the Holy Spirit is bearing fruit in you, you are competent to come alongside a brother or sister and help them and guide them along the way. So that's a great encouragement to the church in Rome and certainly to us as well. Now there's a second encouragement. This one is big. Is that there is, that the Apostle Paul himself is a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. That's the second point there, Rhonda, if you don't mind. Um, Minister of Christ to the Gentiles. Um, And we find this in the next few verses. Now it starts off... Just let me find my place here in Romans 15. Verses 15 and 16. But on some points... I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace that is given to me by God. I've written to you very boldly because of the grace that's given to me by God. Well, hasn't everyone been given grace by God? Hasn't every believer been given grace from God? Absolutely, or we wouldn't be believers. We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. But this Grace is a very specific grace. It's a gift. It's a gift of apostleship that the the Lord has given to Paul and a very specific kind of apostleship where he is going to um, bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So he had an apostolic mandate. An apostolic is one who is sent out, one who is chosen and sent out as an ambassador with the gospel. And that is exactly what the Paul did. And this is why he can speak very boldly. When Jesus taught in the temple, and when Jesus taught anywhere, everyone marveled at him because he spoke with authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. He spoke with authority. The Apostle Paul, having been chosen and having been equipped and having been taught directly by Jesus Christ through revelation, could speak boldly, and he could speak with the authority of Scripture. When Paul wrote these letters, people knew that he was speaking with God's authority. And what he does here is he he wants to remind them, and that is, you you can see the apostles using this word, this, this device of... Bringing, causing people to remember things. The Apostle Peter uses it. I want always to remind you of this and this and this. Um, what the Apostles did was they expounded on the Word of God, the Word that was available to them at that time, which was the Old Testament, and they reminded them of the truth of the Gospel over and over again because there's something that happens when we become familiar with, with doctrine, with teaching. If 
if the gospel or if the, if the, the same routine happens in church week after week after week, um, something can happen where we begin to think that what we learn and what we study week after week is not that important because it's the same person teaching it, it's the same people studying it. Every now and then we need someone to come along and say, hey guys, this is important. <clears throat> that famous sports guy, I don't know whether it was a football or a basketball, where he started his first practice with, gentlemen, this is a football. You know, reminding us of the things that are important. So the Apostle Paul has been doing this all through the letter, and he's been boldly doing it. He's, been, he's made bold assertions um, that he's not necessarily condemning anyone. And in fact, he's not doing that at all. But he's reminding them of the basic truths that they need to understand, even a basic holiness in response to those truths. All right. Secondly, Paul had a priestly ministry, and you see this in verse 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. All right. What does it mean that Paul had a priestly ministry, or that he was involved in the priestly service? Well, the word there, it sounds, that for priestly, it sounds a lot like liturgy. These are the, this was the everyday temple service that the priests did, um, and that involved proclaiming sections of the word of God and the response to it and so on. Um, but in this case, to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in priestly service of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What Paul is doing is he is under the ministry or the service of the gospel. He is bringing the lost to Christ and bringing the Christ to the lost. He is that in that, not, not in the sense of Christ, but in that intermediary role of making sure that these people understand the truth. And then his goal, his goal is not just that they would hear the truth and not that they would only merely believe the truth, but they would, that they would be transformed, that they would be fully conformed of the, to the image of Jesus Christ. Or as he says in another place, that Christ would be fully formed in you. That's his desire. And that... And he goes on in the rest of this, you can see that that is his express goal, that the Gentiles, look at verse 18, the verse part, first part there, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now, I thought that we've just been through all kinds of stuff that says we're not saved by the works of the law. Um, we shouldn't make obeying the law. That shouldn't be what we're all about as Christians. And then he's talking about bringing the Gentiles to obedience. Actually, I'm ahead of myself. I'm going to catch up to there in a minute. But anyway, let's just conclude that this is, Paul had this priestly ministry. And his priestly ministry involved the welfare and the, um, the intercession, all of the roles of a priest in bringing the people into the presence of God in a way that they would be acceptable to him. And that is only through the Holy Spirit.
Paul also had a proud mission. Now, we don't like to talk about pride as Christians. And certainly we need to be very, very careful with um, saying that we're proud. We, we should not be proud of anything that we do. If we boast about anything in ourselves, we are taking glory away from God. But just listen to how Paul words this here. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Are you proud of your work for God? Am I proud of my work for God? Sometimes I'm a little embarrassed by it, honestly. But what does he mean? For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Paul can say, I'm proud of this, I'm proud of my work, because Christ did it through me. It's no different than him saying in, in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the, faith, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, um, he's not venturing to speak of anything that can be attributed to his own skill, his own devices, his own uh, loyalty, whatever. But he is intensely aware that this gift, this grace of apostleship, and the goodness that has flowed through him, and the work that has been done, and the people that have been saved, it is all through Christ. And this is a proud mission. I, I admire, in some ways, sometimes it ticks me off, but pe people from the United States, um, they have such a sense of their identity. And at least many of them, it used to be that way. But the military, for example, um, they're very proud to be serving their country. They're not proud in and of themselves, but they're proud because they serve something that represents the highest ideal for them. Well, Jesus Christ is infinitely greater and more glorious than all of the might and power and splendor of the United States and of all the kingdoms of the world. In fact, the kingdoms of the world are going to conspire against him and against, against him as the anointed one, and he that sits in the heavens will laugh in derision. That's how much greater he is. But we can indeed say with the Apostle Paul that we are on a proud mission. We can take pride. Romans chapter 1 started this discourse about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. We can be proud of Christ for justifying the ungodly, a, an impossible thing for anyone else to do. We can be proud of Christ for bringing us out of death and into life. We can be proud of Christ that he will indeed deliver us finally from this body of death and from our continual struggle with sin. And that in the immediate area of temptation, we can know that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, that the, that the Son of God is our advocate is interceding for us, 
that, um, that he is continually doing his work to bring to completion and to bring to glorification those whom he foreknew in eternity past and whom he predestined, called and predestined and um, justified and will ultimately glorify. Now, why is this so encouraging? The Roman church can look at this and say, you know, God had us mind in mind in eternity past. And even though his promises were given to his people whom he had chosen, he also had in his mind, according to the scriptures we just read previous to this, he also had in his mind the salvation of us Gentiles. Even though that we're latecomers, we're, we're the last of the party, we don't deserve any of this. There's an apostle that is sent to us on this mission. And he wants us, and his goal is that we would be obedient to the faith, just as the Jews are obedient to the faith. Oh, we need to establish something here. This is not obedience to the law of works. There's a new law. There is a new law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's in Romans chapter 8. There's, this, there's a new law. Um, this is obedient to the faith. It's whatever is not of faith is sin. It is the obedience to the spirit of God living in us. It is the obedience that says, I will surrender my body and the members of my body to you as instruments, to God as instruments of righteousness, I no longer am under any obligation to yield the members of my body to sin. And it is walking in the spirit that Romans 8 tells us so eloquently about. It's a whole other law. Now it has the same elements as the old law. Love is a fulfillment of the law. But the one who has fulfilled the law perfectly is not me, it's Jesus. And I don't look to my own righteousness and my own performance in order to say that I have, I have obeyed, but I know that Christ has obeyed completely. And not only that, he has paid my sin, paid for my sin. And through him, I can come to Christ. When you embrace this message, then you earn the right to speak boldly and to speak proudly. Out of what you have done, you would never do that, but what, what Christ has done. And when, when someone says, uh, well, thank you for sharing the gospel with me. I so appreciate what you've done you can say, you're welcome, and to God be the glory. You don't have to, you know, all this false stuff, well, oh, I'm just a poor, miserable sinner. And we, can, we can be thankful that God has given us this, this mission, and we can be proud of Him without beating ourselves up, because... We are in Christ, we're new creatures. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. Alright, number four, Paul had a powerful message. This is all part of the second encouragement of the minister of Christ the Gentiles. 
And I'm just picking up um, sort of partway through verse 18 here. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God. This is how the, the, the apostles' message came to them. By word, which was preaching. And by deed, well, that would include his preaching, would also call, include his living. He would go into places many times and he would, he would uh, work with his own hands so that nobody would even have to support him. So that he could be completely above reproach. So that nobody could um, lay, you know, just say that this guy is just after money or something. There was a, a lifestyle that matched his word. And then there was the power of signs and wonders. Something unique to the apostolic age. Where he was speaking with the authority of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit gave to his apostles the ability to do the miracles as Jesus did. So that everyone would know that they were identified and that they were indeed qualified to be doing the works of God among these people. And also the, word, the, the signs that they did were always in support of the gospel. Um, we don't really need to say much more about that powerful message because we've been discussing it for a long time. But listen... Why don't we have to go around and raise people from the dead or heal paralyzed people in order for them to believe the gospel? <coughs> well, God has given us a very careful and very powerful witness in the Word of God. And He has given us the ability to proclaim it. And this is the instrument that he has chosen in order to bring dead saints to life, or not dead, dead sinners to life. There is nothing of greater power in, in history than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the spirit that he gave after he raised from the dead is accompanies the word of God and produces life where there is death. Every redeemed life is a miracle. It's a radical transformation that's every bit as convincing as that lame man by the pool who couldn't get to the pool and, and then he was healed by the apostles and he went testifying. Um, People would like to see these miracles that were laid out in the book of Acts, but um, this is uh, something that, that is a specific mandate just for the apostles. Now, that, that doesn't take the power away from the message that is preached today. God's, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Now let's look at number three. Kevin St. John's going to like this one. A message of clarity for the world. A message of clarity for the world. Verse 19 through 21. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Lycrium I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Get this. Not where Christ has already been named. Lest I build on somebody else's foundation. But as it is written. Those who have never been told of him will see 
and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope that you will hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. You can see here the global vision that Paul has for the gospel. Now, he's not saying that there is not a place for when the gospel has gone into an area, there needs to be continual building and discipleship. He's not saying that at all. But his mission as an apostle is primarily to go where the gospel has never gone before. Like that prophesied to to Zebulun and Naphtali, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Paul wants to bring light to these people. He wants to illuminate the horizon with the clarity of the gospel. Many of us, we have no idea what it would be like to hear the gospel for the very first time. It's so distant in our memories and maybe buried over with things and cluttered together with tradition. But we make assumptions sometimes that everyone's heard the gospel. That everybody has heard the good news. That everybody knows that we are um, rebels against God by nature and by choice. And that God has, in order to save us, has given his son in order to pay the penalty, the, the sinner's death that we should have paid ourselves. And that, be, that through believing this, we have life through his name. We assume sometimes that that's old hat and that's boring to people. But we shouldn't make that assumption. We live in a post-Christian time. In a post-Christian country. I'm not saying that Christ has no influence. But these things, they're so old now and that they're forgotten. And we need to make sure that we we bring the gospel into the darkness. Paul's goal here is clarity. When you're preaching the gospel, you can you can make it quite complicated. You can make it quite intellectual. You can make it emotional. But the gospel essentially is the truth that Christ died for our sins. Point number one, our sins. According to the scripture. So there's a presupposition that scripture is true and was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the scripture. That simplicity and that clarity, coupled with why he died, the magnification of sin that we saw in the first few chapters of Romans, seeing how desperately lost we all are without Christ. That's the part of the gospel that is often glossed over. All have sinned. Have you sinned? Yeah. Well, everybody's sinned. 
you don't repent from something that you're that nonchalant about. Anyway, um, the goal here is that not only will they see, but that they will understand. This takes patience, it takes perseverance, it takes courage. But you see that this message is intended for the whole world. Christ, at the end of all time, the saints will worship him and give him glory for saving people from every tribe and people and nation and tongue. And Paul's engaged in this mandate to take the gospel to places where it's never been heard before. Largely, that has happened in that there's hardly a corner of the world where the gospel has not gone. And yet Christ has not yet returned. So there is obviously more work to be done. It says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. Why? Well, he's been, every time he sets out, there's some uncharted place where he has not yet preached the gospel and he has to go there and do that. So Rome is kind of way down the road. So he's following the gospel, um, the Great Commission, to be witnesses first in Jerusalem and then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel is continually expanding. So this is an encouragement that this message is... This message, this clear message, is for the whole world. It's already reached to Rome, which is which was sort of the the edge of the empire. And uh, Paul talked about going to Spain, but very shortly, even after the apostles' death, because of persecution, the gospel continued to go, and people continued to share it with clarity. Let's look at encouragement number four: a mindset of charity toward Jerusalem. Now, the Apostle Paul, in, in uh, chapters 9 through 11, he gave a lot of attention to how Israel and how the Jews had rejected God, and yet God had chosen them. And so he went into this extended argument to show that God's word had not failed, and that he had a plan to save out of Israel and out of Jerusalem and out of Judea a remnant for himself. Um, and in his, in his argument there, in chapter, uh, chapter 11, I think it's chapter 11. Anyway, he told, he told the Jews, or told the Gentiles, not to be arrogant against the branches, because it's not the root it's not you that support the root, but it's the root that supports you. In other words, Paul has some explaining and some educating to do here so that there is not a rift between the Jews and the Gentiles, especially between the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles. Um, and this act of charity gives them opportunity. This act of charity that's talked about in these verses, it gives them opportunity to put into practice what he's been teaching them. So he says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. 
from Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now the saints in Jerusalem were being, uh, were being persecuted by the Jews and by the Romans. And it says they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So even though the Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ, one man, he's looking... Um, just hold on. Paul is continuing to see that there is a, a special honor that is given to the Jews. Um, you know, it says in, in chapter 3 of Romans, what advantage is there to being a Jew? I'll just find that. It's worth reading. What advantage has a Jew? Or what, of what value is a circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What, um, so that's one advantage. And then in chapter 9. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, forever. Amen. So when Paul says... You, you Gentiles, you, we actually owe, we owe our Jewish brothers and sisters. It is through them. They are the first fruits. They are the first to trust in Christ. And, but what he's doing is he's making a, he, he's saying, Israel and the Jews still have a place in God's program. Even though there's one church that is composed of Jews and Gentiles, God is going to, remain true to his covenant promises to Israel. And this idea of giving to saints in need is something that we can certainly take to heart today. When, when people, when we hear that Christians are suffering throughout the world, we can certainly help them in this way. Um, but I think it's important just to stop here and we're into a time where the world is probably going to turn against Israel in a very big way very soon. And scripture actually prophesies that the whole, all the armies of the world will come against Israel. Um, Israel is the epicenter of all, Jerusalem is the epicenter of all biblical prophecy and the temple in the center of Jerusalem where I believe Jesus will reign one day. There's not a temple right now, but I think there will be because scripture talks about it. Um, this attitude of charity or love toward Jerusalem for the sake of the saints that are there, but also for the sake of those who do not yet believe. The ones that Paul would have been gladly cut off. He would have gladly been anathematized for the sake of his own people. And when he, and he cries out in Romans chapter 10, My heart's desire and prayer for God for them is that they may be saved. You know, there are, 
there's a growing Christian population there, and that, but God's goal in the end, after a time of chastising and after a time of winnowing and, um, and tribulation, is to that all Israel will be saved. He has not given up. So I might be stretching the little text, the text a bit to bring that in there, but Paul is showing the Romans here to be charitable toward Jerusalem. One more point. Number five. We are given a mandate to contend through prayer. This should be the greatest encouragement to the saints. Is that we can join, we can join with missionaries, we can join with pastors, we can join with Christians, simply through prayer and through intercession. And we can actually, through prayer and inter intercession, affect the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is, it's amazing, it's hard, it's hard for us to grasp. But it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive or contend or fight together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Now, these are not just people who are a little bit... Uh, hostile toward the gospel. These are people who have chased him around from place to place trying to kill him and have actually su succeeded once in stoning him to death and he was raised to life again. So he's, he's urging them, join me in my ministry. Pray for me. Because prayer is not just words thrown up into the air. Prayer is a real piece of the armor. Remember Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the armor of God and the part of the armor that is so often forgotten is praying always with all kinds of prayers for all saints on all occasions. There's this uh, mandate. In that case, it's, it's a, an, an exhortation to pray. So pray for deliver, being delivered from the unbelievers and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. In other words... He's going there to encourage the saints and he wants to encourage them and he wants to bring them these financial gifts and he wants this all to be to God's glory. So we look at all of these together. Uh, all of these points together. We have a multitude of counselors in the church. That was an encouragement. You are equipped to help each other through anything. And this is the case for us as well. Paul was a minister of Christ to the Gentiles. We can read his words, and his words can encourage us. But you know that the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit gave other men to the church besides apostles. He gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave pastors and teachers. And pastors and teachers carry on the ministry of public, bold exhortation in the Word of God. The Apostle Paul commands Timothy to command and teach these things. There is authority that is given to the one who rightly divides the Word of Truth. And so this is a way that Christ, God has encouraged His church all through the centuries. And there are people that are even not part of this fellowship. We listen to them. They encourage us. 
But we have we have the apostles' testimony, and then we have those who break the word of God to us in our pastors and teachers. And we have, again, we have uh, this encouragement to be charitable to Jerusalem and this message of clarity for the world. We don't have to hem and haw about what we believe. You know, this is one reason for studying evangelism intentionally. Because many of us, if we were asked, or if someone finds out we're a Christian, we we couldn't really even answer them, what does that mean? Or what's... What's better about being a Christian than being a Muslim? If you just believe sincerely, isn't that enough? It's worthwhile to be able to sharpen our instrument and be precise. And then finally, this mandate to contend through prayer. All of these things, I think, if we practice them, will be an encouragement to us, as they surely were for the Roman Church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for uh, your word today. And Lord, uh, sometimes the, the words, they don't flow smoothly, but I know that your spirit can impress them upon our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we would retain and meditate upon the words that you would use to change our hearts. And, Lord, to renew our minds. I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on the gospel, on the innocent, pure, holy life of Christ being given in our place for our sins, Lord, that our response would be faith and gratitude and obedience to the one who saved us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be. Uh